Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mixing and mastering engineer Kevin Paul. First of all, let's talk about the skip rate on Spotify. Now, if you've never heard of skip rate, don't feel bad because not many people actually have. What it's defined as is the percentage of users that are skipping a song before it hits the 30-second mark. Now, the 30-second mark is important because that's where it's officially classified as a stream and you get paid. The skip rate is always expressed as a percentage, and it can range anywhere from 1%, which is really good, to 100%, which is not so good. According to product managers at record labels like Sony and Warner and UMG, they see an average skip rate of about 32% across their frontline releases, meaning their most popular newest releases. Now, when it comes to the average independent artist, there's no public data available, but it's believed that it's somewhere around 50 to 55% skip rate. And what's interesting here is the fact that it means that 50% of the people that actually get to your song won't listen for the full 30 seconds. Now, here's the thing. You can't see this metric or the replay rate of a song unless you're a label or a distributor. Yet it's a really important metric that really tells you how well your song is doing when you combine it with the total number of streams. Spotify has had many requests to make this available to every artist on their Spotify for Artists dashboard, but so far it's decided to keep this metric to themselves. Let's hope this changes in the future because it's so important that it shouldn't be kept a secret. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, I'm sure you've heard about ChatGPT by now. It's one of the hottest things going around online. ChatGPT is an AI writing tool. The GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. And it's one of the many AI tools that have come out in the last few years. There are AI image generators, there are AI song generators, and in the audio world, we have AI plugins. So what can ChatGPT do? Well, it can write resumes and cover letters. It can create original jokes. It can solve math problems. It can write song lyrics. It can write content in multiple languages. It can write an essay on any topic, or it can explain complex subjects. I actually use this writing a current book where I couldn't find the information as to what's the difference between USB 4, which is brand new, and USB-C. And I asked ChatGPT to explain it, and it did, much better than anything else I could find online. One thing it can also do is write and debug code. The reason why I bring this up is because YouTube artist Burned Guitarist had to create a virtual version of an Ibanez Tube Screamer as a VST plugin. 
and it spit out the C++ code that actually worked. Now, the sound was off, so they had to tweak it a little bit, and then it sounded smoother, but the UI wasn't that great, so Burn Guitarist gave it a lot more instruction, and there you go. All of a sudden, it looked like a plug-in. It sounded like a plug-in. Now, in the end, it didn't sound much like a Tube Screamer, but the fact that it created a plug-in without the user knowing how to code is pretty fantastic. That's the thing about AI tools. They're astoundingly good at getting you in the ballpark, but you still need a human to smooth out the rough edges. We're now in GPT-3, and this may change. It's going to get a lot better when GPT-4 comes out, but for now, be prepared to do more work than you thought if you use one. My guest this week is Kevin Paul, who started in the music business as a DJ, but then discovered sound engineering and immediately knew that was his true calling. Starting at Soho Studios in London, he later moved to the Kinks' own Conk Studios. At Conk, he worked alongside a bevy of successful producers and engineers, as well as bands such as the Kinks, Galliano, Terrovision, UFO, and Elastica. After working on archiving the Depeche Mode back catalog in 1994, he was offered an engineering role at Mute Records in-house studios, which eventually led to a position as head engineer. Since 2008, Kevin has been in charge of mixing and remixing exclusive performances at the coveted iTunes Festival UK and Germany events. He's mixed over 100 artists to date, including David Bowie, Adele, Ed Sheeran, Alicia Keys, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, Calvin Harris, Foo Fighters, Jack White, Linkin Park, Florence and the Machine, and many more. During the interview, we spoke about the producer that influenced him the most, why he worries about immersive audio being accepted, his views on audio education, where mixing and mastering will be in 10 years, and much more. I spoke with Kevin via Zoom from his studio in the UK. Let's go back to you getting in the music business but before that, you were a graffiti artist, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Yeah. A long time ago. But that was really my introduction to hip hop and music in general, really. And um, listening and discovering the, the hip hop culture that was going on in New York at the time, basically, you know, defined and brought me to where I am, essentially. It was uh, obviously something that was very new something that was incredibly exciting to me. Up until that point, music for me was a load of middle-class people in England telling me how bad their lives were. And uh, <laughs> it just didn't resonate with me. Yeah. And then along came this culture from the other side of the world, you know, 5,000 miles away, and it instantly grabbed me as a, as a medium, as a way of expression. From becoming a graffiti artist, and obviously as you get a little bit older, you kind of look to um, mature a little and sort of find your way. I, I was always into music, and, and I was a DJ for a long time. And then essentially at about the age of 19... After having too many jobs that I could possibly name, I thought I need to have a career, some form of kind of long-term plan. And 
I was always the guy around our, our group of friends who set up stuff. I was the guy who set up sound systems and I had turntables in my house and my house was kind of a, a center of activity. And we were looking on records all the time, wondering what, what, what is a recording engineer? What is a sound engineer? And, and eventually we had a magazine over here prior to Sound on Sound. Um, it was called Home and Studio Recording. And it was in the local news agents. And I managed to find out what a sound engineer was because obviously, you know, this is way before you could dial anything up on, on a phone in 3.2 seconds. And I managed to get a list of recording studios from the APRS, which was the Association of Professional Recording Studios. And I just started at the top. I looked at all the ones that were in London, highlighted them all, started at the top from A, and eventually I got to a studio called Soho Studios. It's not possibly the one that people think it is now. This was a very, very seedy recording studio in the centre of Soho in London. And in my short time there, I was there for probably about six months. And we had one client in six months. But what it did allow me to do was to learn signal flow. And there were a, a, a load of people who just came in and out of the studio using the studio as artists or engineers and producers because the owner was, was a, it was a bit of a sleaze bag to be honest. Um, and one day I said, look, I, I really need to get out of here. And one of the engineers who uh, a gentleman called Steve Dubb, who went on to work with predominantly with the chemical brothers in London, he said, look, why don't you try this studio in Crouch End? And that wasn't far from where I lived. The studio was called Conk Studios. Do, do you know this? Yes. Owned by the Kinks, right? That's correct. Yeah. And uh, I thought, okay, I'll, 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 I'll call them up. And they said, Steve said, they're looking for someone, give them a call, say that I suggested that you call them. I went down for the interview and the studio manager was a little bit abrupt with me, actually. She said, um, you're too old for the job that we want. They wanted a tape-up position, and I was 21 at the time. She said, it's really long hours. We don't pay very well. You know, how are you going to survive as a 21-year-old? And I said, well, look, fortunately, I'm still living at home with my parents. They're fully supportive of me, and all I ask is you give me a chance. Just let me stay here for a trial and see what you think. And she said, she looked through the diary and she said, okay, um, we've got a session coming up in January, January the 21st. I still remember the date. And she said, it's with our house engineer, who is a, a, a very prominent engineer in the UK called Dave Erringer. And we'll see how you get on. And from those two and a half weeks, I ended up staying two and a half years. Wow. You know, um, and Ray took a shine to me. He really liked me as a, as a person. And through Conk, I ended up getting a job over at Mute's Records. And Mute had a lot of work at, at, at Conk. They used to do a lot of work there with a lot of their clients. And 
they said, look, we want to expand the studio at, at Mute. We want it to be more of a commercial facility. So would you like to come along and help develop that? And I was like, yeah, of course, definitely. I spoke to a few people and I said, what do you think I should do? And the guy said, one of my sort of colleagues said, look, you're going you're gonna to have a lot of engineering experience at, at Mute. You know, you might not be working as an, as an assistant here on the SSL because it was a little bit of a smaller facility, but you'd be doing lots of engineering. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go for that. You know, and I spent 10 years there. And I pretty much worked with every single artist in the studio and on the label. So, you know, it was everyone from Depeche Mode at one end right down to the hardest sonic noise group that they had just signed from a Scandinavian country, maybe, or Germany, um, which was, you know, something that they did a lot of alternative avant-garde, you know, kind of music. And that was it. That's where I learned my chops. You know, that's where I, I learned my chops. And, you know, at Mute, I, God, I mean, I was so privileged to, to work with all the, the producers and artists that came through there. And fortunately, I like a lot of music and lots of different styles of music. So even if it was a recording of gravel sliding down a chute for 16 minutes, you know, I could, I could appreciate that. I appreciated the sonics and I appreciated the, the, the renegade aspect of it, you know, and obviously we did the pop stuff. We did, you know, Erasure, Moby, Goldfrap, Depeche Mode again, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And, and, and a plethora of, of other artists. But um, I was incredibly lucky. You mentioned that you worked with a lot of prominent engineers and producers. Was there one that influenced you the most? I, I could list out a roll call, really, of people that influenced me. There's, there's a few. There's, and, and he's a person, actually, that I never worked that much with. And that's a producer called Flood. Oh, yeah. And what I was influenced the most about with Flood is the fact that he had a totally different vision of how to be a producer than pretty much any of the other producers I worked with. And he was always thinking something that nobody else in the room could think of. And like I say, I only worked with Flood maybe two or three times in, in, in my whole time, even up until today. But every time I've worked with him, I've just gone, ah, okay. Now, he, now this is a way to look at something. He wasn't, he wasn't thinking technically, he was thinking artistically. And the creativity that he, he, he had, or has, I, I really, really was intrigued by. I saw that you did a lot of 5.1 and SACD work while you were at Mute. Yes. And that was cutting edge at the time. How did that influence you later on? Well... I, I, I love surround sound, immersive sound, um, you know, whatever you like to call it now. And that particular project, we, we, we first of all started out doing 11 Depeche Mode albums, and we had to deconstruct every single one of them. So for every album, I had to become a different producer and engineer. And we had a team of us that would put the albums together 
and because they weren't remixes we we were painstakingly trying to recreate the original records in surround format and as we all know we're always trying to create width and depth and height and here we had this medium that was kind of there that's what it was it was width and depth and yeah you didn't maybe have the height but you could use tricks and and ideas to to gain that and for me it seemed like a, an absolute natural extension of stereo. And I, I know there's a lot of people that are talking about Atmos as to whether it's relevant or not. But I, I think, I think if, they, if the people who are promoting this technology do it properly and for the right reason, I don't see why people in the future... I've been giving lectures at university on surround mixing for 15 years and and the one thing i was always saying to my students was when the person comes up with the multi-filed format where no matter what device you are on it will find the format whether it's stereo mono surround they will be a very successful person and incredibly it never came from the music industry it came from the film industry um you know with dolby atmos obviously and for me, the, the surround albums gave me the biggest education I could ever possibly want in how to mix records like some of the greatest mix engineers in the world. One of the things about Immersive, about Atmos, the beginning of the year, there was so much hype. And by the end of the year, that had died down a lot. And what I noticed was a lot of experienced engineers began to comment that, you know, this works really great for certain types of music, electronic music, for instance. Yeah. Not so much for pop music because all the glue that we work to get, it's kind of dissipated. So uh, how, what's your feeling on that? I think there's potentially an element of truth in that. I, I think one of my biggest worries about the format in general is the people that are promoting it and marketing it. I don't think it's the creativity that's the problem with Atmos. I think record companies see it as a marketing tool and they don't see it as a genuine format. So I think that's a big problem for a start. Um, and they made the same mistake with Super Audio CD and 5.1. They didn't see this as a new format. What they saw it as, well, instead of spending $150,000 on promoting a record, we can pay an engineer $25,000 to mix a record and a technology company will now promote it for them for free because that's what's happening as far as I can tell at the moment. Apple were doing all the promotion or you know, technology companies are doing all the promotion. Record labels don't seem to be interested in the format as a format. And and to be honest, I guess as technicians and artists, we shouldn't be surprised by that because the record industry is notoriously not interested <laughs> in the actual creative part of it. For them, it's, it's something to sell. You know, music is something to sell. I think it goes another step. It's a new copyright for them. That's more important than anything. Yeah, it's an asset. It becomes an asset. What's been yeah. happening over here is there's a lot of barely qualified engineers that are getting the work, and they're doing it very inexpensively, very cheaply. But they're just getting stems. They're not getting the multi-tracks. 
what they're being told is make it sound as close to the stereo as you can. So that limits you right there. It limits you on several levels. There you go. Then when, when somebody goes and plays their favorite song in Atmos and it's not what they expected, that's self-defeating. I think for that, but yeah, I, I think I think that's because the record companies are not interested in the format. They see it as promotion. I don't think they see it as a creative thing. And like I say, why should they? They've never been interested in it, in it before. I, I think artists need to start thinking of it as a format and they need to start making records in Atmos. And that can only come about if there's enough studios to make it and people see the benefits of making it. I think if we looked at the conversion between mono and stereo, you know, that took decades for that transition. And while Super Audio CD has been around for, or was was around, you know, Surround Sound and Super Audio CD was around quite a while ago, I think we should take take the Dolby Atmos thing as, as ground zero, really, for, for immersive audio. And I think if we do that, it's probably going to take 15 to 20 years for the entire transition to become, okay, the primary format is Atmos and everything else is a secondary format. You know, I have heard people say that the best way to listen to music is in stereo. That may or may not be true. I, I don't know. I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'm convinced about that. I think Atmos is, is a great format. I think Atmos allows listeners to be in the center of the, the, the sound field. In terms of certain genres, I think what people should be doing is thinking, well, okay, well, certain genres work in certain ways. Electronic music, you can be as experimental as you like. There's no defined kind of places for a MOOC synthesizer. There's no vision for what that represents. A drum kit and a band, I think that has preconceived ideas of, of placement and where things should sit. And you just have to be a little more conservative, potentially, with how you, with how you present those records to the general public. You know, when we did all the surround sound stuff for Nick Cave, we weren't trying to make things fly around you all the time or you know we we had 65 percent of the record was forward and the ambience of the record was in the rears and and you know backing vocals would be in the rears when possible and just allowed the space to fill out and when you compared the stereo to the surround there was a massive difference and that difference was space and and that's what i think people need to maybe kind of go on for for Atmos is is don't don't get lost in the technology. I think we can go pretty deep on this. Uh, oh, oh yeah, we could talk for hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get on with some other things here and maybe we can circle back. What made the decision for you to become an independent engineer producer? Well, I, I the decision was kind of taken for me. EMI bought Mute and Mute said, okay, or EMI said, we don't need all these studios. You know, we've got Abbey Road and whatever else they had. We don't need a little mute studio in Harrow Road. So we're going to scale all those down. 
then you have to go off in the big bad world and, and kind of just do things by yourself. So I got myself a website, managed to get some really good gigs working on behalf of Apple, funnily enough, and iTunes. And we were doing a lot of their festival work that they were doing at the time. They had a whole series of events here in London every year where for one month they would have two to three bands a night recorded and we would record them, mix them overnight, get them out for approval the next day and they'd be on the Apple store for people to download within 48 to 72 hours. Just like the old days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and we had a really well-oiled machine of engineers. There was myself and maybe two or three others and we were working shifts and, you know, come the end of the month, We'd work 31 days straight, 15 hours a day. And, you know, we were looking forward to the last night, essentially. But we did some really good shows there. After that, you just wait for the work to come in. And you just do what comes through comes through the year. Well, now it's through the email. You know, everything comes through the email now. So I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think I made the decision. It was kind of made for me. And it was either that, Bobby, or go out and get a real job. And I've spent 32 years trying to avoid getting a real job. I'm not going to start now. Yeah, yeah, I don't blame you. Now that you're mixing for whoever wants your services, when you receive tracks, is there one thing that bugs you? Or one thing you say, I I wish they wouldn't do that? Oh, naming. (laughs) Naming file. Yeah, okay. Audio one, audio two. Yeah. Or Jim one, Bob one. Yeah, exactly. It's the one thing I insist on, actually. I send out my little sheets of information saying, you know, everything has to start at bar one. Give me the sample rate at the original session. Please name your files appropriately. I will not accept files that say audio one, audio two. I will come back to you and make you do it again. That was a big problem initially, but there's been so... People, there's been so the development of home recording and artist recording independently has actually developed quite a lot. And people are a lot more savvy now, and they're a lot more technically proficient, and they're a lot more respectful as well because they know they're sharing information with people, and they and they know that if if they get it right from the get go, it's going to make the process smoother. Yeah, occasionally you get one that you have to go, okay, come on, you need to send this to me again because I'm not going to work with that. I don't know what that is. You know, yeah. I, I, I could guess, but I don't want to guess. You know, I've got enough, enough things going on. Yeah, yeah. When you do mastering, is there something similar? Yeah, no limiting. Take the limiter off, please. It's a common problem, I'm sure. You know, we all experience that. But, you know, give me some headroom, for, God damn it. Yeah. Let me push, <laughs> let me give you some pushback on that because this is something that I've run up against. If you have a client that signs off on the mix and, and you've already put compression limiting on it because they insist on it, well, then the problem is if you take that off and it, it sounds different after mastering, then they're going to come back at you. That's the downside. Well, I, I, I send my mixes out with limiting on for the client. You have to, right? Yeah. Otherwise, People come back and go, it's not as loud as the one that I really like on iTunes. You know, yeah, we, we know that, right? But even even artists now know that. They, they're aware of that concept. So generally, 
you're sending it with the limiter. And then obviously you say, okay, if you're going to, depends who's mastering it. If I'm mastering it, I can make that, that, that version and deal with that myself. But it's always the case of let me, um, let me send you two versions to the mastering guy, send one with the limiter. So he's aware of what the client is actually listening to. And then I send you the one where you can do whatever you like, you know, with no limiting on. And sometimes I don't even put the compressor on because my compressor doesn't work. So I'm not kind of compressing it a lot on, on, on my stereo bus. And, and really, that's, I guess that's more just about communication, really, with the, with the person as to where it goes afterwards. But like I say, most people now, particularly the, in the indie kind of do-it-yourself recording, they're all aware of that kind of stuff. You know, they're, they're aware of that. I've, I've just done a forward for a book for a colleague of mine, the, the person who introduced us together, Simon. And, you know, it's a great book. It really explains to project studios what it is we as professionals are trying to do. And it allows them to, to, to get into that and to educate them. And, and I'm all for education. You know, years ago, we, we were educated by following people and, and learning from engineers and producers. That, unfortunately, is becoming less and less available to people. So it's down to us to share information in different ways. Let's go there for a second, because you've, you've been teaching at Westminster University for quite a long time. Yes. That being said, things have changed from the time that you started to now, I bet. What students expect, what they're proficient at, or, or what they're even interested in. So in what ways has that happened, and how did that influence you? Well, I think education, for me, has the first thing, the first lecture I give at the start of every year essentially goes somewhere along the lines of if you've just come here to learn how things work, you could have saved a whole lot of money and just watched a million YouTube videos. I'm trying to teach people how to be creative in the studio. And I want to encourage my students to find their sound to find their place and some students are very well developed and they've got a good history of how recording studios work they come from all over the world some of them have very little experience of recording and making music so you kind of have to coach each student individually once you get to know who's at what standard and where on on developing their creativity because education i think has become a little bit stale there's a million videos like i say of how things work but no one's teaching anyone how to be creative and it's something that i care quite a lot about because like i said how we learned is i would sit in the studio with one engineer on monday another engineer on wednesday i'd stay with another group of people on Friday for three weeks and I'd be learning from a whole load of people and I'd be gathering all the information that I wanted to, to, to gather. I like this, I don't like that. And then I'd try it out on the one day off that I had. Education, like I say, for me has just become, wow, this is how 1176 works. And this is what Pro Tools does. I don't think that's good enough anymore, actually. 
And I'm trying to develop a couple of things next year, which I, I don't necessarily want to talk about too much today, where maybe that can change using the right people and, and using the technology that we have available to us. Now, one of the things that I noticed, I have some online courses, and what I've noticed is some of the mixing techniques that we used in the past. Now, there's a plugin that will do it a lot easier. And there's a nice learning curve that goes with, well, this is the way we used to do it, and this is why. And now it's kind of just done for them. So I worry that some of that industrial knowledge is going away. Well, I tell you, I could probably give you quite a good example of that, actually. Do you remember the the old trick that we used to do with the H3000? And we would have plus and minus three cents either side, short slapback delay. My very last lecture of the year, I demonstrated that with the two plugins that you need to do, a delay unit and uh, a pitch shifter. And they were completely blown away that you could use plugins in series with each other. Because to them, they would just call up random plugin, set it on the pitch vocal effect, and it would have all of that knowledge inside it. And again, I think it's really important that those engineers that have that depth of knowledge share that depth of knowledge in the right way. Because if we don't, all mixing will be is load up X plugin, press X preset, job done. And there will be no creativity behind that, Bobby. It will just become mixing by numbers. Once you get into that territory, you might as well have a computer doing it for you. Well, speaking of which, there's a lot of interesting AI-driven plugins now that will do a lot of that for you. I mean, Isotope has some great things that, you know, we had to work hard at and develop our ears, and, and now you can kind of look, do it the right way, ask it for mastering, for instance. If you give it some, a target and say, make it like that, it does it pretty convincingly. Yeah, it does. And there is a place for tools like that, for me, absolutely, in the industry, I, I think. And technology, we shouldn't be afraid of technology when when things become in that way. But I think, I think the difference, I think there will always be a need for a human element for certain genres, particularly genres where there's a human interaction between musicians. I think there's always going to be a need for a human being to tie those all together. I guess there's potentially an argument to say with some electronic forms of music that you could computerize the entire process. I'm not quite sure whether whether it would make a better job or, or, or a worse job than a human being. I mean, one of the examples I could maybe suggest is clipping. People use human beings discovered that you could distort digital equipment. And actually, there is a point where it sounded good for what they were doing. A computer, if unless it's programmed to, would tell you that's instantly something you can't do, you know? So as long as we maintain the the humanized the human aspect of, of making music, we can hopefully use those computer interfaces and computer technology in a positive way. I'm, I'm not afraid of that. 
You know, I'm, I love presets. I love presets in, in, in plugins, you know, and the example I would give is if you went into a studio and you wanted to use the pull tech EQ on the kick drum, you wouldn't reset the pull tech EQ. You'd hear what it was first. And that's the preset. That's the preset of the last guy that used it. So that's the starting point. And I think, you know, presets have their place. They're great starting points for people who are not sure where to begin. But what the real difference is, can you, what, what can you do with that? What can you do with that and where can it go? And that's really what, when I'm trying to teach my students, that's really what I want them to think about more than anything. What is it that you're trying to do here? Okay, when you say, where can it go? Let's expand on that a little bit. Where do you see recording, mixing, mastering going in 10 years? Because it's changing, it's evolving. Well, when I started out in the music industry, Bobby, the studio was the only place you could make a record. It's now the last place you go to make a record. Yeah? Yeah. So for me... I'm not quite sure where the where it takes place, but I still think fundamentally that the essential things that, that made great records for many, many years will still exist. Um, yeah, sure, I mix records remotely and I never speak to clients, but sometimes, but there's always an engagement with my clients in terms of what are they looking for? What would they like from me? And tell me what it is that you want. I, I never just say, look, this is what it is and that's it. Yeah. And I think as long as that human, in it's, I think it's all about human, human interaction. I, I think, you know, we've we've all made records where we've recorded one part at a time, and we've all made records where there's five people in the room. I'm pretty sure I know which version would probably sound better, and I'd know which one I'd like to try first. Okay, well, let's go there. With so many people, especially at home, depending upon samples and loops mm. to get creative and develop their songs, there are some recording techniques basic recording techniques that are, again, kind of fading into the ether. Yeah, yeah. And that's a shame because these things, I, I, I keep on thinking, there's going to be a major artist or maybe a new artist that becomes major that is that goes kind of back to the future where instead of of depending upon loops and samples, they're doing it all organically. And that will change the cycle again. Yeah I, yeah, I hope for that. I don't know. <laughs> you know, supposedly it should happen, you know, if we look at the cycles of, of how our business works, but we'll see. I kind of almost think that, I don't know if you remember, but when computers were suddenly fairly mainstream when it came to making music, everyone said, I don't need a recording engineer. I don't need a mixing engineer. Mastering, what's that? And, and nobody went to us. No one came to us. And we were kind of redundant for a couple of years because everyone thought they could do it themselves. And then what happened was, in my opinion, is that they suddenly realized that actually it's quite hard what we do. And it actually is a very specialized thing, both mixing, recording, and mastering. So 
Then there was the online kind of revolution. Everyone went online and everyone was, um, because, you know, mixing from all over the world with loads and loads of people. And suddenly people really appreciated the interaction of human beings. And, and I think, and again, I'll use my, my students at university as an example. They do all their work by themselves, yeah, for all of their projects. And what they really miss most is feedback and encouragement, yeah? Yeah. They need, they like, actually, people saying, that's good, why don't you try this, let's see where it can go, you know, production, essentially. Again, there are some artists who sit in front of a computer and they're, they're geniuses. They know exactly what they want, they know what they're trying to do, and they don't need help. But that, and that's fine. That's brilliant, right? We, we all learn from people like that because we want to get inside their heads and go, well, how, how are you doing that? Because you're creating something different, something new, something exciting. But for most people, particularly if you're in a band, you, you want someone to look at across the control room and give you the nod or the wink or the kind of thumbs up. You know, and, and that human thing. And I think one of the things that we maybe got from the pandemic was that we really appreciated human beings. Yeah. And we really appreciated that kind of sense of other people. I think society kind of going, going quite off topic a bit here, but society kind of up until that point thought that they could do everything by themselves. We don't need anyone now. We, we, have, a, we have a telephone. I don't need you anymore. I'm quite happy to sit on my phone all day and just do what I want. And then suddenly that option of being with a human being was taken away. And we suddenly went, oh, actually, I kind of miss that. The phone can't provide that. Technology can't provide that. And I think it's the same with making music. In fact, I think it's the same with any creative art, Bobby. Whether you're making a film, writing a book, taking a picture, doing a drawing, you need interaction. You need someone, even if someone just comes along and says, look, that's really good, keep going. You know, and I think, where is it going to be in 10 years? I think it will just be various extensions of that. It will probably be AI, VR. That will play a huge role in things. But even then, ultimately, I think the, the sitting in a room with people jamming, trying things that's where it all kind of exists you know one of the things that i kind of envision and i actually did a drawing of this was kind of a heads-up display for engineers when they're tracking where they wouldn't have to look at the console to look at meters or or look at the the computer to look at meters it would be in a heads-up display in Virtual. front of them yeah. where they would yeah. see whatever levels they needed any kind of visual feedback that normally they'd be looking down, looking away, they can actually see it in front of them. That would be good, as long as we're I'm, I'm, as people are tracking. I'm sure our people will be tracking. You know, no one's going to stop making an Arctic Monkeys record. The Arctic Monkeys aren't stopping making records in ten years. Yeah, Ed Sheeran, he's not going to stop making records. You know, the yeah. guys who make EDM. It's not one guy making EDM. It's five guys in a room yeah. chilling out in front of a computer screen. No, it's rarely one person isolated on their own. You know, we can go on and on and on, I think. I really enjoy speaking with you, I, I, and from a philosophic level. Yeah, well, I think music, 
music is is you know I, I think you know music taps into a lot more than than maybe what people think you know the technology allows anyone to do it so what's the difference between you and me it's creativity yeah yeah exactly that's where it, and I think that's 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 what that's what people like yourself and and you know the hundreds of guests that you had and, and myself we need to keep doing is is pushing that creativity because if we don't what happens is the machines take over <laughs> yeah you're right last question kevin what's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you i'm going to say when you're making music don't worry don't worry if it's good or bad just create and you can always reflect once you stopped working and then you can tell yourself that it's not very good and that you're rubbish and that you should never pick up an instrument again or go into the studio and plug in a microphone again. You can do that at the end of the session when everyone's gone home. But while you're in the moment, don't worry and just be present. You can find out more about Kevin at Kevin dash paul.com that's kevin dash paul paul.com thanks for listening and being in my inner circle remember if you have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobby remember that you can learn all about the latest in music audio and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobby there you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events that's bobby Listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.